Well, we have been uh, a few months in the first two chapters of the book of Luke. And uh, now we're going to continue in the book of Luke, but we're going to uh, pick up the pace. We're going to zoom out and, and take a look at the gospel according to Luke in, in bigger sections. If we were to have done this for Luke chapter 1 and 2, what we would have concluded is that Luke really wants to make two main points in those opening chapters. The first point is this, as he presents John the Baptist and Jesus in parallel accounts as he uh, sends the angel Gabriel to announce their coming and their birth, the point is that the old covenant represented by John is going to introduce and give way to the new covenant which is written in the blood of Jesus Christ. That's predominantly chapter 1. Chapter 2 then goes on, and we were looking for witnesses to affirm that this, in fact, is true, that Jesus, in fact, is the Messiah, that he is the one to bring the new covenant into the world. And so we see uh, you have the, the witness of, of angel, uh, the angel Gabriel. We have the witness of the law, specifically Leviticus 12. We have the witness of the prophets, Simeon and Anna. Uh, at his birth, I miss them, the, the shepherds bear witness. And then ultimately, at the end of chapter 2, you have Jesus himself, who in the front of the scholars and the intellectual elite, the scribes and, and the priests in the temple at Passover, says to his parents, did you not know that I would be in my father's house? He knows who he is. And now we come forward in time to the third chapter of Luke. Jesus is about 30 years of age. He's about to launch into his public ministry. Today I want us to ask a question that has two parts. It's two questions, but the two questions are so related it's, it's one question with two parts. As we look at the baptism of Jesus, question that I want all of us to think on, and if you can answer this in the affirmative, then to think on the significance of it. Number one is, what, have you been baptized by water? And if so, what's the significance of that? The second part of this question is this. Are you ready to be baptized by fire? Have you been baptized by water? And are you ready to be baptized by fire? In order to answer these questions, at least to give us the, the scriptural uh, substance that is required for us to think on these things, open your Bibles to Luke chapter 3. And as you do, would you please stand? Luke chapter 3. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being Tetrarch in Galilee, and his brother Philip, Tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book, of the words of Isaiah the prophet. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled 
And every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. The crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you're authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? He said to them, not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water. But he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff, the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove and a voice came from heaven you are my beloved son with you I am well pleased Jesus when he began his ministry was about 30 years of age being the son as was supposed of Joseph the son of Heli the son of Mathat the son of Levi the son of Melchi the son of Jani, the son of Joseph, the son of Metathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Math, the son of Metathias, the son of Semyon, the son of Josek, the son of Jodah, the son of Joannan, the son of Resa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, 
the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kosam, the son of Almadam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Joram, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Maliah, the son of Mena, the son of Matatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nashon, the son of Aminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arni, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the, th the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalil, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we look at this text, help us to understand it. John baptized with water. Jesus baptizes with the Holy Spirit and fire. I pray that we would be ready for that baptism. Lord, speak through me. As weak and insignificant as I am, for your measureless glory and for the building up of this church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. The third chapter of Luke can be divided into four main sections. The first section is verses 1 and 2, which is just historical context. It's important, though. We'll talk about it very, very briefly. Second section runs from verse 3 to verse 20, and that's the ministry of John the Baptist. Third section, which is related to the second, is the baptism of Jesus. That's verses 21 and 22. And then finally, the genealogy of Jesus, which goes from verse 23 to 38. So we're going to look at these four sections. We're going to spend most of our time uh, in sections two and three. Uh, but the first section, the historical context, this is very important for Luke's purposes because Luke, at the very beginning of his gospel, you will remember, said that he is endeavoring to give an historical account of the life of Christ. He wants us to understand who Jesus is, and he's saying, this is not just my idea. This is not just a good philosophy. This is what has happened in time and space. And so he locates the ministry of John the Baptist and the beginning of the ministry of Jesus by, by taking a look at the date. That's basically what this is. Uh, when he says that, that the, 
the ministry of John began when this person was governor and this person was tetrarch and that person was tetrarch and these were the high priests. What he's saying is this is the exact time in history when everything I'm about to tell you took place. Uh, if Luke was living today, he would just say on May 31st, 2009, you know, if he was trying to give a specific date. But this is how they dated in that time. So John is basically locating the ministry, of, or sorry, Luke is locating the ministry of John in the beginning of Jesus' ministry to about 29 AD. 29 AD. Moving on to the second section, the ministry of John the Baptist. Again, we could spend so much time looking at, at all of what John's ministry was about. But I want us to look really predominantly at something else, which John bears witness to, which is Christ. But we could really divide this second section from verse 3 to 20 into five subsections. So as you're going back next week, and you're going to be going over the third chapter of Luke, and you're going to be studying, I'm going to give you some framework that you can do your study. So the first one, uh, the first section of John's ministry runs from verses 3 to 6. This is where John prepares the way for the Messiah. Uh, I would have loved to get into the book of Isaiah and what's happening there. Every one of the gospel writers, in fact, go back to Isaiah 40. But we don't have time. But maybe you want to ask yourself, what is with Isaiah 40? announcing the ministry of John the Baptist. And in order to answer that question, you want to understand what is Isaiah 40 within the context of the book of Isaiah. We don't, we're not going to go there today. Second se subsection of John's ministry is this warning of final judgment, which stretches from verses 7 to 9. Related to that is John's teaching about the fruit of repentance. Remember, he's warning about coming judgment. He tells them to repent, and so people are alarmed and say, what do we have to do? What, what do I have to do to prove that my repentance is real? And so you get some teaching there which says, well, you need to show fruit of repentance. And this is what that looks like if you're just one of the crowds, just a general person, if you're a tax collector or you're a soldier. These are just three illustrations of what true repentance looks like. You'll notice that his teaching follows very close in line with Jesus. And for the women who are studying the Sermon on the Mount, you should see some echoes there. Fourth section is again John preparing the way for the Messiah. But this time, uh, it's John preparing the way for the Messiah in that he's connecting the ministry of the Messiah to his warning of final judgment. Now, we don't often do that, broadly speaking, in the church in Canada. But when John was preparing the way for the Messiah, he was attaching that to the judgment to come. Then finally, we see the imprisonment of John by Herod in verses 19 to 20. So in this second section in chapter 3, I want to focus in on John's understanding of final judgment. More specifically, what we're going to look at is how does John, inspired by God, filled with the Holy Spirit, recorded by Luke, also inspired by the Holy Spirit, how does John understand the coming final judgment as it relates to the ministry and the mission of the Messiah. 
Let's start with John's view of the final judgment. In order to get a, a very clear snapshot of this, we just look at verses 7 through 9. Let's read those verses again. So he, John, said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Well, that's quite a, quite a way to welcome people out to your public ministry. He, and, and you remember, he's calling them snakes. He's associating them with the serpent from the garden. You, you brood of vipers, you offspring of the serpent, who warned you? Verse 8, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Do not begin to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. So John was addressing something very important, very specific to his context. There, there were uh, ethnic Jews who were coming to him and they were expecting that they could just go through the motions because they were the offspring of Abraham and to them belonged the covenants. To them belonged the circumcision. And what John is saying is don't for a moment think that your ancestry to Abraham uh, puts you in a good place regarding the final judgment. What you need to do is not count your biological uh, heritage but take a look at the fruit coming out of your life. Don't look back, but look forward. Uh, what is your life about? Do you have fruit that's in keeping with repentance? And if not, don't think that you're saved. That is an easy application for all people, right? Because this is directed at the Jews, but it's directed to everyone. Don't just think because of who you are or who your family is or what you've done uh, in the past that you are saved. But does your life reflect a life of genuine repentance? He goes on, he says, I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Now, now John might have pointed right at stones. He might have picked a stone up out of the water and said he could turn this stone into a child of Abraham. And he might be going back to Adam and thinking how God formed a man from the dust of the earth. Or... There might have been Gentiles coming out to see what this was all about as well. And he looks at the Gentiles and he says, you Jews think that you're saved because you're offspring of Abraham. Look at these stones. You think that these are dead men walking? God could make them into a child of Abraham. Now, I don't, I don't know which one it was. If you prefer the physical stone, that's fine. If you see that there's this polemic between Jews and Gentiles here, then that's also up to you. Regardless, the point is made, don't count on your ethnic biology for your repent or for your salvation and now it gets even more dire in verse 9 even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees every tree therefore that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire now this is frightening why How's your fruit? And what, what we're tempted to do, I, I, and I say we as humanity, not we as saved men and women in the church, but I would maybe include us in this general statement. What we're tempted to do is, therefore, we must bear good fruit through a gospel of works. 
That's, that's how it would most naturally hit somebody's ear. That in order to not be cut down and thrown into the fire, you have to be a tree that bears good fruit. You go out into the world and you just say that to somebody. Ask them what they think you're saying to them. They're thinking that, that you're telling them that they need to be better people. That they need to clean up their life. They need to be uh, more something. Now, how does that square with our understanding of the gospel? Doesn't, right? It doesn't. Here, here's the hard reality. Um, there are no good trees. And so this is the foundation of the gospel, that without Jesus Christ, there are no good trees, which means there, there is no good fruit. Even what looks like good fruit is rotten fruit to God. And remember, I'm talking before we introduce the gospel, okay? So I'm talking, this is all wor a world without Jesus. What John is saying here, unless God does something significant, the ax is laid at the root of the trees. That remember, John's mission is to present the Messiah. And, and we're saying, even now, because the Messiah hasn't come and accomplished anything yet. I know that it was accomplished from before the foundation of the world. But, but historically, as, as John is about to introduce the Messiah, nothing has been accomplished for humanity yet. So John says, even now, even now, as I am here about to present to you the Messiah, even now, I want to tell you something. There's an axe laying at the root of your tree. It's pretty sober. Unless God does something, God will pick up that axe and he will wield it and he will chop down your tree and my tree and every tree. And then all our lives will have been good for is fuel for the fire. Remember, this is a world without the gospel. It's sober. And he's saying this to a bunch of, of Jewish people who are gathered thinking that they're already safe under the old covenant because Abraham is their father and because they're a part of his circumcision. So John's view of the final judgment is dire. He says the, the final judgment is imminent even now. And the imagery that John uses is there's an axe at the root of a forest of trees which represents humanity, every man and woman a tree. And the judge is going to wield that axe, chop down the trees, and burn the wood in the fire. Now, our expectation then is that John would transition and say, but don't worry. There's a Messiah coming, and he will throw that axe away, or he will give you good fruit, or something like that. John eventually gets there, and we'll get there, but that's not where John starts. Take a look at John's view of the Messiah as it relates to this final judgment in verses 15 to 17. So we're skipping over verses 10 to 14 where John gives very practical application. He says, look, if you, if you want to bear good fruit, make sure that your life is conformed with God's ethical standards, which we know is over a lifetime impossible to do. Verse 15. Now the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John. They thought he might be the Christ. But John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water. 
But he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. If we just stop there, we think, oh, that's good. John baptizes with water. Jesus, the Messiah, is going to come along and baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. And we think about regeneration. That's that's where our minds go because of the systematic theology, which is good theology, but it preempts the text. We get too far ahead in the story, and we start imposing Pentecost back on this moment. That's not what John is talking about here, and we'll see why in the next verse. To be baptized by the Holy Spirit is to be searched entirely by the Holy Spirit from whom you cannot hide. And and with the Holy Spirit comes fire to burn up all sin. That's a little different. That's frightening. I, I prefer the baptism of water. Just wash me clean. Don't burn away my sin. I mean, I don't ultimately prefer that, obviously. But if I put myself in John's ministry, if I can go back in time in my mind and put myself there, this is frightening. Look at the next verse, verse 17. He explains what what it means to be baptized by the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork, the winnowing fork of the Messiah, is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Now a threshing floor, you'd you'd bring in the harvest, the wheat, and and you'd have the stock and the wheat. You'd have what you want, and you would have what you don't want. So you'd have a winnowing fork, and on a windy day or a breezy day, you'd throw it up in the air, and the chaff would blow away, and the wheat, that which you wanted, would fall down because it's heavier. Now, the problem is here, I mean, again, don't, don't get to the end of the gospel yet. Just put yourself in this moment. Uh, there's no wheat to be gathered. Je- Jesus comes to baptize us with the Holy Spirit and fire. He searches us with the Holy Spirit the image is that he throws us up into the air and the chaff blows away, falls down over here. Then Jesus gathers it up and throws it in the fire. How much of you falls down to the ground as, as grain and wheat to be gathered into the barn? It's frightening. Baptism of fire. So John's view of the Messiah to regard to this final judgment is this, that the Messiah has come, and with him comes the final judgment. The image that John uses here is that of a winnowing fork, wheat and chaff, and an unquenchable fire. So you see the two images are so similar, uh, an axe and a winnowing fork, trees and chaff, fire and fire. I mean, this is not the feel-good sermon of the year. You go out to see John, you don't, you don't go back into Jerusalem feeling very good about yourself. You feel scared. It's sobering to come face-to-face with who we really are without Christ. I want to just 
explain to you, just as a quick aside about Pentecost, it's very important that we don't take what we know about Pentecost, right? Because there, the disciples were baptized by the Holy Spirit, and it looked like tongues of fire were over their head. What we don't want to do is put Pentecost first in interpreting this passage, right? So we have Pentecost, then we have this passage, and Pentecost informs what we think John is saying about the baptism of the Holy Spirit in fire. In fact, it has to be the other way around. And that's the marvel, that's the wonder of the gospel, that when this baptism by the Holy Spirit in fire came on the disciples, they weren't burned up. So you have to put yourself sequentially in, in Luke's mind in the way he's presenting the gospel. The baptism of the Holy Spirit in the fire is all about final judgment, all the greater than the day of Pentecost, that they came through that baptism of fire. That's, that's, that's astounding. That's unexpected. And why did they come through the baptism of fire? And why was nobody baptized by the Holy Spirit in fire before the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus? If, if God had brought the Holy Spirit down to baptize a group of, of men and women with, with the Holy Spirit and with fire before Jesus atoned for their sin, they're burned up. So, so we have to unpack this theologically, sequentially, according to the history of what God is doing. And, and God decided, remember who John is, he personifies the old covenant, and he does what the old covenant did. He says, you're in very big trouble. Because God is holy and righteous. And he's going to judge and who can stand? It's not the kind of introduction to Jesus that we might expect. And, and the reason for that is because we know the gospel so well. But we understand what Jesus came to accomplish. But it would be exactly, precisely the kind of introduction to the Messiah that you would expect if all you had was the Old Covenant. What's unexpected, this is what we're going to get to, what's unexpected, you just read through the Gospel of Luke, you get into Luke chapter 9, I believe, and what's unexpected is that the Messiah would be baptized by fire. By crucifixion. What does Peter say? No. Don't go to the cross. So, so John's introduction of the Messiah is not unexpected. What's unexpected is what the Messiah comes and does before the final judgment. But as of right now, all John has said, look. There's a final judgment coming. Being in Abraham does not save you from this final judgment. The circumcision of your flesh does not save you from this final judgment. In fact, the final judgment is coming and you're all in very big trouble. And the final judgment looks like trees being chopped down and thrown into the fire or, or chaff being winnowed and thrown into the fire. That's what you can expect. That's what the Messiah is coming to do. Uh, so the level of anxiety is high. And then Luke does something astounding in verse 18. So with all other exhortation, he preached good news to the people. This is great news. The Messiah is coming, and he's going to judge everyone with fire. Good news. 
wouldn't feel like good news. Now, in order to understand how this is good news, like how in the world is this good news? In order to understand this, we have to think deeply about baptism. What is baptism? Most of us have been baptized as believers. Why did you do that? What was this implication theologically? What were you trying to declare? In order to understand our own baptism, we have to really think on John's baptism by water, which was a baptism of repentance, and the Messiah's baptism by fire and the Holy Spirit, which is a baptism of judgment. Our, our own individual baptism has to fall into these two baptisms. Baptism by water, baptism by fire. Now, there is one other place, well, probably several other places, but one other place I want to go right now in the Bible where this contrast between water and fire with regard to final judgment are used in the Scriptures. So if we want to understand John's baptism and the Messiah's baptism, I believe it's helpful to look at 2 Peter chapter 3. Just flip forward. 2 Peter chapter 3, as you're finding your spot, uh, ultimately, I would encourage you to read all 13 verses. Uh, that whole section where basically there's this question about where's the Messiah? Why is he so long coming back? And, and Peter says, well, he's not that long coming back. He, it's just don't be too quick to want him to come back because when he comes back, baptism by fire. And then he does something interesting, and he says, you know, there's going to be scoffers between now and when the Messiah returns. So, so Peter's writing after the crucifixion and resurrection ascension of Jesus. So we're talking here about the return of Jesus, and with him comes judgment. And, and Peter then, in that context, temporally says, there's, there's going to be scoffers who say, you know, I don't think Jesus is coming back. I don't think there really is a final judgment. I, I don't really believe in a baptism of the Holy Spirit and fire. Therefore, I'm just going to go about my life as I want to go about my life. A and then Peter does something really interesting. And he says, well, they're not the first group of people to doubt God's coming judgment. Take a look at verse 4. 2 Peter 3, 4. These scoffers will say, Where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Nothing's changed. Peter responds to this kind of thinking in verse 5. They deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged or flooded with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of final judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. 
So what Peter is saying, which is going to help us to unpack what's going on at Jesus' baptism and how to understand our own baptism, is he's saying, look, the flood that, that God brought on the world because of the wickedness of humanity, he, he called Noah to build an ark. And in that ark, he put Noah and his family and the animals, and they came through the judgment of water. And the, the ark landed on the mountain. Animals and Noah and his family got out into a new earth. It was the same earth, but it was new. It was a fresh start. Right? He says, that is a lot like what it's going to be like when the Messiah returns. So don't, don't be thinking that it's not going to happen. When the Messiah returns, God is not going to um, flood the world again. He promised he wouldn't do that. He's actually going to burn up the entire universe with fire. If you look down on uh, verses 11 to 13, we're not going to read them, but he says, so how ought you to live? If you know that that's coming, and it's as certain as the first judgment, which was the flood, uh, this burning of the universe by fire is going to happen. How ought you to live? And then he says this, and on the other side of the fire is a new heavens and a new earth. Just listen as I go back. You might say, well, okay, he doesn't mention baptism there. Sure, sure. But he does mention water and fire. And in his previous letter, in 1 Peter 3, verses, well, you could look at verses 18 down to the end of the verse, but I just want to focus in on halfway through verse 20. It says, God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body. So what he's saying is don't think that baptism is about purifying, purification or cleansing. Because you could sort of mix the metaphors, right? I'm going down in water, I was dirty. I go down in the water, I come up, now I'm clean. He says that's not the import of baptism, water baptism. When you are baptized, what you're doing is you're, in a way, you're going through the waters of judgment, and your sin is drowning on the outside, and you come through into a fresh start. Now, he connects this, though, with the resurrection, or sorry, the baptism of fire, though he doesn't say it here. I'm going to show you how that's exactly what he's doing. He says, this, is, this baptism by water is not about removing dirt from the body, but it's appeal for a good conscience. So I guess there is a cleansing of conscience. But through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and who is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, powers, having been subjected to him. So, so in other words, what Peter is saying is when you are baptized with water, you got to, in order to understand what's happening, and this is interesting, he doesn't go back to circumcision. He goes back to the flood. I would suggest that the images of the Old Testament for understanding our baptism, which we're not going to get into all of them, just the flood today, is the flood, the Red Sea. That's the national baptism of Israel, and Paul talks about that, that they were the baptism of Moses through the sea. Then 
the Red Sea Part 2, which is crossing the Jordan River into the promised land. If we want to understand baptism, we don't go to circumcision. We go to the flood, we go to the Red Sea, and we go to the Jordan River, and then we go all the way forward to the final judgment. We're just going to look at the first judgment, the flood by water, and the final judgment, return of the Messiah and fire. So in John's baptism of water then, what John is doing, among other things, is he is symbolically reenacting the flood. He's calling people, and he's taking them under the water. He's bringing them out of the water. He's reenacting the flood, the judgment of God against their sin, baptism of repentance, coming out with a repentant heart into a fresh start as Noah came through and his family came through the judgment of water. That's what he's doing, among other things. I would also preach that he is calling Israel back to the Red Sea to remember that they were delivered from slavery. I also believe that what he's doing, he's calling Israel back to the Jordan River, saying ever, ever since we entered into the land, we've been sinning. Let's cross through the Jordan River again, and this time let's not sin. And I think there's, there's implications for all of those things, but we're focusing in on on Noah's flood, or the flood where Noah came through, and the final judgment here. So John's baptism of water symbolically reenacts the flood, which means that the one being baptized is identified with Noah and his family. You see how that works? Under the water, out of the water. I want you to think of Genesis 6 to 8. When you, you're like Noah going through the waters of judgment. And you come through. How? By repentance. Coming out of the water then signifies a fresh start. But here's the problem. The sin has not been dealt with. And we see this with Noah. What did Noah do after he had the fresh start? Noah was a new Adam. He was a fresh start for humanity. God saved him. He comes out of the ark. And what does he do? He repeats Genesis 3. He, he plants a vineyard, a new garden. He picks a fruit, a grape. He ferments it. He takes off his clothes. I mean, that's an imagery to the nakedness of Adam and Eve. He drinks the wine and becomes drunk. What, what we learn way back in Genesis 9 is that we're no further ahead as as. As a race of human beings, we, the sin problem hasn't been dealt with. God destroyed everyone but eight people, and the sin problem hasn't been dealt with. So, so the baptism of water cannot be the answer. So we need another baptism. A baptism of the Holy Spirit and fire. Messiah is going to come, and he's going to bring that baptism with him. And this baptism is effective because it doesn't wash the body. It doesn't even temporarily cleanse the conscience or the heart or the soul. It burns it up so that it is no more. No more sin. Those who are baptized by fire are purified by fire. 
Now, the problem, who can come through a baptism of fire? Where's our ark? It's exactly what Luke endeavors to answer. Take a look at verses 21 to 22. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form, like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Where's our ark? For the baptism of fire. Genesis 8 reads this way. Genesis 8, verses 6 through 12. After the flood, at the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that had, he had made, and he sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove. Sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him into the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf, so Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days, and he sent forth the dove. She did not return to him anymore. Now, is, is the Holy Spirit a dove? No, I, God could have, the Holy Spirit could have descended from heaven onto Jesus in any way, shape, or form that he so desired. But He's not a dove, but to anyone who was looking upon what was happening, what they saw was something. They may not have been able to identify him, the Holy Spirit, but they saw what looked like a dove coming down out of heaven, landed on Jesus. So Jesus then, because he has no sin, he has no need for repentance, submits himself to water baptism, not to identify himself with Noah, but to identify himself as the new ark. How are we going to get through this baptism of fire that the Messiah is bringing? Well, we need an ark. Jesus is that ark. Now, how does Jesus become a new ark for us to take us safely through the baptism of fire? This is what's unexpected. Jesus becomes the new ark by submitting himself to the baptism of fire on behalf of all who believe. 
I mean, this is the most astounding thing that you could ever imagine God doing. He's going to send forth his Messiah to judge the world. That makes sense. What doesn't make sense is that the one who's going to come to judge the world, to baptize the world with fire, would himself be baptized by that fire. This is exactly what Jesus says. Just listen in Luke 12, verses 49 and 50. Jesus says, look, I came to cast fire on the earth. And would that it were already kindled. He says, I, I, I'm ready. I want, to set, I want to baptize this world with fire. He says, I can't do that yet, verse 50. I can't do that yet, implicit in the text, not explicit, verse 50, because I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Now, he's already been baptized by John in water. He's not talking about a water baptism here. He's talking about the, the baptism of fire that the water baptism anticipates and looks forward to. Jesus' water baptism points forward to the fire baptism in many ways. Let me just give you two. One, Jesus' water baptism is a picture of his crucifixion. So, so in the Old and New Covenants, when, when we're looking at the Old Testament and the New Testament, it's always shadows and pictures that, that anticipate the real thing. And so Genesis 6 through 8 is a picture of the final judgment. There's no question about that. So when Jesus submits himself to water baptism, which is a reenactment of the flood, he's participating in the picture that will be the real thing when he's on the cross. Because on the cross, what Jesus does is he brings the final judgment of God, which is still in the future for us, for, for humanity. He pulls that back in time, and the final judgment falls on him on the cross, baptism by fire. And so, so the baptism by water is anticipating final judgment. Final judgment comes back in time and lands on Jesus on the cross. That's why Jesus was baptized by water. Not that he needed to repent for anything, but he's participating in the shadows and he's participating in the fulfillment. And in so doing, Jesus becomes the new ark for a new humanity who will come through the fire of final judgment into a new heavens and a new earth. You have Genesis 6 through 9 just played out. Only there is no sin. After we come through the baptism of fire, all of the sin is consumed. So, so then if we are in Christ, now Paul says that so much, right? Every time you see now, in Christ, just think ark. If we are in Christ, how does our sin get burnt up? Because we come through the baptism of fire, and we're not burnt up. How? That's the baptism of the Holy Spirit for believers. The Holy Spirit, when he baptizes us with fire, unites us with Christ on the cross, and our sin, past, present, and future, is burned up by fire from heaven at the cross. So the question is not whether or not your sin and my sin will be burned up with fire. The question is where will it be burned up with fire? 
you want your sin to be burnt up on the cross or at the final judgment? If you choose to give your sin to Jesus, he will carry it. I have, a, I have come to set fire to the earth, but first, I have a baptism with which to be baptized, he says. The full wrath of God, the fire from heaven is going to fall on me and consume all sin that I carry. So if you give your sin to Christ, your sin is burnt up and you are in Christ, united with him in his death and resurrection. You ride in him through the final judgment, the baptism of fire, and you come out on the other side into a new heavens and a new earth. And on the other side of the fi final judgment, the baptism by the Holy Spirit and fire, there's no sin. There's no sin in the world. There's no sin in you. There's no sin in me. And we enjoy permanent life with, eternal life with God forever and ever. Now, who is eligible for this baptism by the Holy Spirit and fire? Luke answers that also by the way in which he locates Jesus' genealogy. Let's just Repeat from verse 21. When all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, new ark, water baptism, anticipating fire baptism, which is a picture of the cross. And then a voice from heaven, God the Father, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Now, if we just stop there, what we think Jesus is say, or the Father is saying about Jesus is, this is my divine Son, the second person of the Trinity, eternal God from eternal God. And I'm not denying that, that that is a true statement, and God might, might intend that here, but the way in which Luke presents this, at the very least... When God says, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased, at the very least, this is as much about Christ's humanity as it is about his divinity. And let me show you why. Uh, go down to verse 38. We get a genealogy from Jesus all the way back to Adam. Verse 38, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. So, when we're looking at this genealogy, we have to ask the question, why does Luke put it here? Why not put it at the beginning of the gospel like Matthew does, right? Matthew starts with the uh, genealogy at the very beginning. And we've already noted uh, a couple months ago that you see the line of the kings in Matthew's genealogy. Matthew's point at the very beginning of his gospel is to say that Jesus of Nazareth is the Davidic king, the promised Messiah who will reign forever and ever. That's, that's the function of the genealogy in Matthew's gospel. But you'll notice here that Luke doesn't go through the, the order of kings back to David. He takes a different route through Joseph we talked about that. This is not a different genealogy because 
Luke only had access to Mary's line. In fact, this is not Mary's line. Find Mary's name anywhere in this genealogy. It's not there. It's through Joseph, but it's not through Joseph's ancestry through the kings of Judah back to David. It's a different line. So, you know, two different sons of David through generations find and meet in Joseph, the adoptive father of Jesus. And why does Luke not go through the line of the kings? Because his point is not to say that Jesus is the king. Not that Luke would disagree with that. But, but Jesus' point is to say that Jesus is the ark for all people through which you must be in, uh, you must be in him so that through, which, through him you will come through the baptism of fire. Another way of saying that Jesus is the ark is to say that Jesus is the new Adam. It's the same thing. Because at the end of the age, there's two, two possibilities. You're either in Adam, right, which you're going to be judged for your sin, or you're in Christ. And you will come through the judgment into the new heavens and the new earth. So when God says, this is, when God says, uh, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased, implication here, Adam, you are my son, and with you I am not well pleased. Statement of his humanity as much as his divinity, Christ's, that is. So Luke, if I can just sort of wrap this up, takes this genealogy and answers the question, who can get into this ark? All of humanity. Notice he doesn't stop with Abraham, but it goes all the way back to Adam. Anyone descended from Adam has the opportunity by grace through faith to be in Christ and to journey in Christ who is the new ark through the baptism of the Holy Spirit and fire which is the final judgment and come into a new heavens and a new earth. Conclusion. Final judgment in the form of fire is coming. The Messiah will bring this final judgment and he will baptize the world with fire. But the Messiah is also the new ark that will bring some through the fire of judgment into a new heavens and a new earth. So everything that John said is true, that the Messiah is coming with judgment, but before judgment... Jesus took the baptism of fire on himself for all who would believe. And in so doing, he becomes a new ark. And therefore, Jesus, not Noah, not Abraham, not Moses, Jesus is the fresh start for humanity. 
Jesus, who brings a baptism of fire and who is the ark who takes us through that baptism, is the fresh start for humanity that we've been longing for. It's what all of the Old Testament saints were longing for. Noah had a fresh start and he immediately sinned. Baptism of water doesn't get to the root of the problem. Baptism of fire does. Returning to our opening two-part question then, have you been baptized with water? By being baptized in water, we declare to the world that we have been put in Christ, that he is our ark, and that we are ready for the baptism of fire, of which our baptism of water is but a picture Which leads us to the second part of this question. Are you ready for the baptism by fire? Are you certain that you are in Christ? Because final judgment will come. Are you in the ark? Have you given your sins to Christ? Do you know that your sins, past, present, and future, from our perspective, have already been burned up like chaff in the fire of the cross? If you're not sure about that, come forward and talk to me. Talk to Glenn. Talk to Blair. Find someone to talk about. Have assurance of your salvation. Get into Christ before it's too late because the final judgment is imminent. But if you're in Christ, if you're trusting in him and only in him for your salvation, if you know that a baptism of fire is coming and you, like Noah, know that you cannot survive outside of the ark, if you say, I I am clinging to Jesus Christ with all that I have and, and it's none of me and it's all of him, then count that a great joy. You are ready for the baptism of fire. And though it will be great disaster for so many people, even still you pray to Christ and you say, come Lord Jesus to make all things right. Are you in Christ? Then you're ready. And you can worship him with joy and thanksgiving in your heart and you don't need to be afraid of the final judgment. Never allow death and the final judgment to give you any more anxiety or fear or depression because it's over. The fire has fallen and your sin is consumed in Christ and you are safe. Get into Christ. And if you're in Christ, rejoice. Mark this by choosing, as a believer, to be baptized by water. And when you're being baptized by water, maybe you have to think back to your baptism, say, by doing this, I declare that. I am ready for a baptism of fire. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there's so much to think about here. We thank you that uh, you have prepared us for this message by showing us who you are and by putting us in Christ. I pray, I pray that we would have assurance of salvation, those of us who are in Christ. And 
I pray against any counterfeit conversions. It's too important, too serious to be wrong. I pray that we would search ourselves and either find comfort in the finished work of Christ or put ourselves in Christ that we might have that comfort. Lord, there's a world out there scoffing, saying that judgment is not coming. To them, I pray that you would help us to be ministers of reconciliation. Help us to point them to the ark, which is Christ, that they too may be ready for a baptism by the Holy Spirit and a fire. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.